Support for this WHYY podcast comes from Cabrini University. Cabrini's master's and doctoral programs fuse ethical decision-making with the skills required to advance students' careers. Students experience a supportive community that helps them find their passions while discovering ways to change the world. Learn more about Cabrini's part-time and flexible scheduling and convenient location near Philadelphia at cabrini.edu slash whyy. I'm Marty Moss-Cohen. Welcome to Radio Times. Dick Sporting Goods announced this morning it would no longer sell assault-style rifles and high-capacity magazines and would ban the sale of guns to customers under the age of 21. Here's the CEO, Ed Stack, speaking with George Stephanopoulos on Good Morning America about learning that the alleged gunman at the Parkland, Florida High School, Nicholas Cruz, had bought a gun at Dick's in 2017. He bought a, a shotgun from us back in uh, in November. And it wasn't the gun, nor it was the type of gun that, uh, that, that he used in the shooting. But when that happened, we realized that the system, and, and we did everything by the book. We did everything that the law required, and still he was able to Amazing buy a gun. Amazing that he was able to buy a gun. He was still able to buy a gun. And when we looked at that, we said, the systems that are in place across the board just aren't effective enough to keep us from selling someone a gun like that. And so we've decided that uh, we're not going to sell the assault-type rifles any longer. Since the Parkland, Florida mass shooting two weeks ago, more than a dozen companies had have severed their relationship with the National Rifle Association by stopping discount cards and other perks offered to members of the gun group. And the hashtag boycott NRA has been gathering steam because of the horror of the Valentine's Day massacre and the NRA response. We start today's show by looking at boycotts, what makes them effective, and we asked Americus Reed to join us. He's a professor of marketing at the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania, and his research and consulting involves brand identity and loyalty. America Sri, nice to have you with us on Radio Times. Thanks for having me on. It's uh, been two weeks since this tragic shooting, and uh, as I said in my introduction, a number of companies severing their relationship with the NRA, and then this morning, this announcement from Dick's Sporting Goods. Is this the sign of the beginnings of a successful boycott? I think it is. I think if you trace back uh, what's been going on, you can take it back to 1999 Columbine uh, and Sandy Hook six years ago in 2012 to Parkland, Florida. Most recently, and you're really seeing kind of a groundswell that is amidst two things. One is the fact that everyone is connected now in social media, so activism has a more powerful, potent role because information is spreading very quickly uh, because of everyone's social networks. And number two, we're living in a world now amidst these sort of cultural wars whereby companies can no longer hide in anonymity. And consumers are demanding to want to know, what is it you stand for, and does what you stand for align with my own personal values? Sounds like you're saying this is a cumulative effect, because I certainly remember after the shooting at Sandy Hook, um, many people felt that because there were no uh, gun control laws put in place and in response to that, that Mm -hmm. any kind of boycott or pushback against the NRA was really ineffective. Yes, I think that that perception has changed now because people realize that uh, social media gives them a much more powerful voice and a lot of uh, sustainable energy around the activism uh, efforts that they engage in now. And so it's going to be a question of whether or not these individuals can sustain this effort over time, but it's certainly 
is the case that we're living in a time where the sustainability of these types of efforts are greater than they have been in the past. And is it also the individuals who were speaking out, these uh, very eloquent high schoolers who have been interviewed and been speaking in the last two weeks? Is it something about them and their message and the way they are using the media and social media that's more effective? Absolutely. I think it's the power of the anecdotal example. And you have these kids who they're not really interested in the the politics, the dynamics of money giving and pay for play and all of this stuff. They're saying, hey, I was there. I was under a desk. I thought I was going to die in the next 20 seconds. I was texting my mom, my family, and this is just not acceptable. And when you see these young voices, these these young individuals who are mature enough to come out and take an activist stand, it's a very, very powerful and emotional message. And I guess the question is, how does that get sustained? And, and I guess in any kind of boycott, that's the big challenge. It is. It's really huge because you have a kind of interesting dynamic here. From the company's perspective, you have companies that are making a a very calculated decision about whether or not they're going to potentially alienate a certain group of consumers. And here, you know, in that context, if you're a company, you definitely don't want to be the last one jumping on board. So you definitely see kind of a snowball effect here as well. And so the company response is interactive with the consumer response. It's kind of very cyclical. It's very iterative and you see kind of a snowball effect building. And so the more this continues to get play in the media, the more likely it will be potentially sustainable. But are companies making this decision based on brand loyalty, based on their concern or fears that they're going to lose money if they keep their association with the NRA? I think it's a little bit of both. It's hard to say, right, whether or not it's a moral argument or an economic argument. I know in some cases there is a straightforward analysis that says, hey, there are potentially 6 million NRA members, depending upon whose data you believe, uh, and I'm willing to forego those consumers because I believe net-net I will gain more consumers who view this gun control issue as something that they're passionate about and they believe in. On the other hand, some companies are willing to just say, you know what, we believe it's the right thing to do, so we are not necessarily going to try to make money or come out profitable on this. We're just going to basically have a moral stance. I mean, at the end of the day, it's the same outcome, so I'm not sure we should care about it, but it is an interesting dynamic as to whether or not it's a moral versus an economic decision. Talking with Americus Reed from uh, the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania about boycotts and and specifically the uh, hashtag boycott NRA. You can join us at 1-888-477-9499. You can also send us an email, Radio Times at WHYY.org. And you can tweet us at WHYY Radio Times. Tell us what you think about this particular boycott or boycotts in general. Let me quote something from FedEx. Uh, we will not deny service or discriminate against any legal entity, regardless of their policy positions or political views. They are taking a very neutral position um, on uh, their, I guess, their uh, association, their relationship with the NRA. Do you think in today's climate that's going to fly? I think it's interesting. I think what's what's interesting about FedEx's official statement that you just read, Marty, is this idea that they are neutral, but they are also in that statement coming out very much and saying that, you know, they are against sort of this idea of these dangerous rifles and things of that nature. Um, and so, for example, they say we, quote, therefore support restricting them to the military and, and other sorts of things. So they are walking the fence here. What's very interesting, Marty, though, is the research that shows that uh, companies that essentially take a stance are seen as more credible 
even when they take that stance against your own political views. Because, as I said earlier, it's really the, the, the way society is right now, consumers want to know. And that actually might be the, the differentiating factor. Ceteris paribus, all things being equal, two similar products by two similar companies, if the main difference is that, hey, this other company really stands for what I believe in, that might be the difference to put my money in that company. So I'm, I'm not sure it's smart to stay out of it necessarily, but I certainly understand that FedEx is sort of walking the very fine line of not really uh, – denying the NRA that discount, but also coming out and saying that they have some very clear views on gun policy issues. And what about people who support the NRA? Is there backlash when you have boycotts? Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm, absolutely, there is the case that uh, consumers will actually rally around that. We actually studied this in my own research. We look at uh, the, the polarization of views when people become morally outraged on social media. And what we find is that as something happens and people talk more and have conversations, Marty, out there in the social media world, that their views become more and more polarized. And mm-hmm. so this can often lead to consumers coming out and saying, hey, you know what, I'm going to actually come out and support these other companies that are or take my money away from companies that are taking away discounts uh, from the National Rifle Association. How about people who feel in some way that a boycott is going to hurt them? As you said, if, if it's an equal choice, you can you can choose one company over another. But what if it makes a consumer feel as if I really want this thing, but I can't have it? Yeah, I think that's where the beauty of the of the marketplace comes in because there are lots of options that consumers have and it'll be an individual personalized moral choice whether or not a consumer is willing to inconvenience themselves to to stand up for what it is they believe, whether or not they're willing to talk with their dollars, talk with their wallets. Uh, I think in any event, there will be always be companies that come in and swoop in, even if there is a deficit and sort of a need to have a product there. Uh, companies will be stepping in to be able to fill that need, and that's just the dynamics of, of market supply and demand. So consumers have clout. Yes, they have a lot of clout these days. And so far, it's been two tragic weeks and two weeks since the tragedy. Mm -hmm. In terms of sustaining any kind of boycott or this one in particular, what needs to happen? A couple of things need to happen. There's a kind of inertia that's there that's very difficult, and that is the fact that the 24-hour news cycle is constantly running. And so it's easy to have the next big thing happen and then support goes away. I think what has to happen, though, is activism that is organized at the sort of ground roots in the local sort of environment and creating a ground swell around that and creating more interest in the story uh, for media to want to be able to pick it up. So as media see that, these kids are organizing and others are joining in and they're coming together as a community to try to make policy change, that becomes a sustainable story because it's still interesting and people are going to want to hear about it. So they're going to have to keep on doing this in the face of uh, kind of short attention spans and the fact that the news is changing so quickly. And does social media replace media in terms of keeping an issue alive? I think social media absolutely has that role. Everyone who walks around, uh, Marty, with a cell phone is basically potentially a consumer vigilante. And so, you know, with that power, they have the ability to immediately put information, uh, complaints, 
outrage into their social networks and to feed that energy amongst that network. And again, once you reach a certain threshold, it becomes interesting in terms of the national media. The media will pick it up and continue talking about it, and that's what they're going to have to do. Let me get to Tony. Looks like Tony from uh, Doylestown to join our conversation. And we have uh, Tony calling into Radio Times. Uh, Go ahead, Tony. You are on the air. Hi, Marty. Thanks for taking my call. Sure. Um, I'm an NRA member and a big supporter of uh, rifles and guns in general. And I have no problem with Dick's Sporting Goods taking their stance on not selling these guns. But I saw in the letter that they wanted to encourage politicians to ban the rifles, Mm -hmm. which to me does not make sense when you look at statistics of how many rifle or long gun deaths there are in this country. Um, And I just feel like, as a whole, we are not focusing our attention on the real causes of homicides in our country, where they would say roughly 30,000 deaths every year are related to guns, and 20,000 of them are related to suicides. Only about 400 of them are long gun or assault rifles. I I hear you. In fact, Tony, we we have a second guest who's going to join us in just a couple of minutes, and we will pick up on that. But but, uh, America's... um People, I, we we're hearing from Tony, obviously we talk about consumers having a lot of clout uh, and they can use their dollars in whatever way they want. Mm-hmm. I think that's absolutely the, the the correct point. And Tony is making a, a great point here in his example. He's saying, listen, you know, he respects the fact that Dix is making their own personal decision to not provide access to a certain class of, of guns. Uh, but at the same time, as long as that doesn't, for Tony, uh, impinge upon his right to get access from somewhere, then he's okay with that. So, you know, again, consumers can make up their minds. Companies have to make up their minds about how all of this is going to play out and whether or not they're going to take a strong stand on this type of issue. Well, Americus Reed, thank you so much for joining us today on Radio Times. Thank you. It was a pleasure. A pleasure for us as well, talking about boycotts and specifically the hashtag Boycott NRA. Americus Reed, professor of marketing at the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania. As I said, we've got another guest waiting in the wings. Uh, Robert Spitzer will be talking about the history of the NRA and, frankly, the history of the Second Amendment. Much more to talk about after this very short break. We'll be right back. I'm Marty Moss Cohen, and you're listening to Radio Times here on WHYY in Philadelphia. Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School opens today, two weeks after a mass shooting that killed 15 students, a football coach and athletic director. Nicholas Cruz, the alleged gunman, had reportedly made threats about shooting up the Florida school. He used an AR-15 that he bought legally. Students at that school have used the horror of what happened there to lobby for gun reforms, speaking at the Florida Capitol at rallies on radio and TV and on social media. Here's David Hogg being interviewed on MSNBC earlier this week. In the same way that there's limitations on the First Amendment, where you can't yell fire in a crowded theater, you shouldn't be able to get an AR-15 or any weapon that could kill a number of people if you're a mentally unstable individual, if you're a person with a criminal background or somebody with a history of domestic violence. I don't get what's so hard for these legislators to understand. This is sensible gun control that both sides can support, but they sadly can't because they're bought by the NRA. Wayne LaPierre, head of the NRA, sounded a familiar theme speaking last weekend at the Conservative Political Action Conference. The elites don't care not one whit about America's school system and school children. If they truly cared, what they would do is they would protect them. 
For them, it's not a safety issue. It's a political issue. They care more about control and more of it. Their goal is to eliminate the Second Amendment and our firearms freedoms so they can eradicate all individual freedoms. We asked Robert Spitzer to join us to talk about the history and evolution of the NRA and the history evolution of the Second Amendment. He's professor and chair of the political science department at the State University of New York at Cortland, author of five books on gun policy, including Guns Across America and the new seventh edition of The Politics of Gun Control. Robert Spitzer, nice to have you back with us on Radio Times. Yes, it's good to be with you. Does this moment feel different uh, to you? Uh, We just heard two clips, one from a student and one from Wayne LaPierre. Are we at a different place when it comes to a conversation about guns, or is everyone sort of retreating to their familiar corners? Well, it's a little of both. There is a sense that what's happening right now, what's happened in the last couple of weeks, is something different. And it really began with the students at Parkland High School. Unlike uh, circumstances where mass shootings have occurred in the past, certainly at public schools, generally speaking, the, the school kids wanted privacy, certainly didn't want to talk to the press for you know, perfectly understandable reasons. But the high school students at Parkland did something different of their own volition, and that was they seized the microphones and seized national attention by saying, you know, these terrible things have happened to our friends at our school, but we think the government fell down on the job and should be doing more things to avoid possible uh, calamities like this in the future. And that really has grabbed a lot of attention. Whether the momentum of this sort of new political activity will sustain itself, whether it will have a political effect continuing on in the weeks and months ahead, and perhaps even to the November elections, is really the big mm. question. Um, and But retreating to one's corners uh, also is, is happening now. Uh, from what you know about the alleged shooter, Nicholas Cruz, Could he have been stopped? And I don't mean stopped at the school, stopped before he got to the school. Oh, I don't think there's any question but that he could have been. Uh, And to a great degree, depending on what state he lived in. Um, Florida, like many other states, has fairly lax gun laws compared to other states. But a few states have gun laws that are quite a bit stricter. And as a matter of fact, seven states have laws on the books right now that essentially bar assault-type weapons. So, for example, in the state of New York, if he had gone to a, uh, a gun store to buy the kind of weapon he bought in Florida, he could have obtained one legally that resembled an assault weapon of the sort that he used, but it would also have had a fixed bullet magazine. That is mm-hmm. to say, it could not legally have had a removable magazine, and it would have been limited to 10 rounds, 10 bullets, so that after you fire an initial 10 rounds from a gun legally bought in New York State, you then have to stop, open up the the firearm, and drop in new rounds, and instead of dropping out a removable magazine and slipping in a new one. So the idea that he could have fired hundreds of rounds would have been impossible, pretty much, because he could have been stopped after 10 Mm -hmm. rounds. And that's just one difference between how a state like New York handles and regulates its 
uh, weapons of an assault type nature versus a state like Florida. And I do want to talk about the Second Amendment and the NRA. Um, we have also learned that uh, the police were called to his house multiple times. And now there's some question about um, how to improve reporting to the national instant background check. Do you think that's something that has some legs? Well, there is. I don't think there's any doubt, but that there is by support, bipartisan support in Congress for improving on the data gathering and reporting that goes to the uh, federal NICS background check system. Um, there are, I believe, right now five states and another one may be coming on board that have what's called a red flag system, where if there's an individual who has the kind of troubled background and who has issued the kinds of specific threats that Cruz and Florida did over a period of many months, a person could report that to the police. The evidence could be taken to a judge who could make a determination that, yes, we need we are entitled and the uh, police should take firearms from this individual until we can adjudicate whether this person poses a threat or not. And uh, that's an example of a kind of a law that would be extremely helpful, would have been in, in the Florida shooting case and would be in many of the cases around the country, too. So that would be an obvious uh, uh, legislative provision that could be enacted that could have had and could have a significant impact. Well, let's go back to 1789 to the Second Amendment. I will read it with its punctuation. A well-regulated militia, comma, being necessary to the security of a free state, comma, the right of the people to keep and bear arms, comma, shall not be infringed. What did the founders intend? Well, if you look at the actual debate in the first Congress, when that amendment in a slightly uh, different form, pretty similar, not identical wording, was introduced, there was some debate about that amendment. Amendments were added and subtracted. And if you uh, take that together, it's abundantly clear that the founders were talking about the right to keep and bear arms, but specifically in connection with citizen service in a government organized and regulated militia. Mm. Because at the time, if you were uh, a militia age man, you not only were expected, but required by law to have a military grade weapon available. And in order to ensure that the militias would be viable, they wanted to make sure that those weapons would not be stripped from individuals as a way to disarm or or uh, somehow uh, uh, um, render the militias ineffective. So it was tied very specifically to militia service. That's how the courts interpreted that amendment in the decades to follow. And that was the general understanding in law and in history until you come to 2008, when the Supreme Court in its uh, very famous but also controversial decision of District of Columbia versus Heller said that the Second Amendment now protected a personal right of citizens to have a handgun for personal self-protection in the home. And well, that changed the law, to be sure. It, to be sure. But let me quote Justice Scalia, uh, part of the Heller uh, Amendment or decision, I should say. Uh, like most rights, the right secured by the Second Amendment is not unlimited. It is not a right to keep and carry any weapon whatsoever in any manner whatsoever or for whatever purpose. What was Scalia telling us? 
Well, that's a very important quote. In fact, there's other wording in the amendment that endorses the idea that the Second Amendment is not an unlimited right. And the bottom line is that most existing gun laws were considered and are considered perfectly constitutional, even under uh, that majority opinion in Heller. And that endorses a very important historic point, which also history was also raised a bit in the Heller decision, which is that in most of our history, gun rights and gun laws were not viewed as uh, at loggerheads. They went hand in hand. And in fact, in the first 300 years of our history, and I write about this in one of my books in some detail, there were literally thousands of gun laws on the books that existed among the colonies, then later in the states, and also in localities, extensively. Guns, uh, gun laws regulating every imaginable element of gun ownership, possession, and use. Um, and so the idea that uh, that gun laws are an artifact of the 20th century of the last or the last several decades is really false. In fact, in many respects, guns were regulated far more in our first 300 years than they've been in the last 30 years. So gun laws and gun rights in most of our history, not incompatible at all. In fact, went pretty much hand in hand. Let me quickly reintroduce you. And then I do want to talk about the NRA. That's Robert Spitzer. He's a professor, chair of the political science department at the State University of New York at Cortland. He has written a number of books about guns and gun policy, including Guns Across America and the new seventh edition of The Politics of Gun Control. And you can join us at 1-888-477-9499. You can send us an email, radiotimes at org. You can also tweet us at WHYY Radio Times to join the conversation. So let's go back, what, 150 years to the founding of the NRA? What was its original intent? Well, the NRA was formed by two Civil War veterans from the North who had been pretty dismayed at the typically poor uh, shooting, marksmanship, and gun handling skills of the average uh, um, the average man serving in the Civil War. Uh, con- here again, contrary to sort of mythology, the typical American young American male didn't seem to know one end of a gun from the other. Now, there mm-hmm. certainly were exceptions, and plenty who knew something about firearms. But the, that Civil War experience uh, prompted uh, these two Civil War veterans to form the National Rifle Association in 1871, where its manifest and stated purpose was to improve the marksmanship and shooting skills of militia-eligible men. And marksmanship, uh, gun skills, and related uh, uh, techniques were the main focus of the NRA, holding shooting competitions, training sessions, and other things through uh, many decades of its existence. It was a fairly small organization for several decades. Um, They benefited because the government provided the NRA with sometimes free weaponry and free ammunition, uh, surplus weaponry. That would certainly be an inducement to join the organization. And it was not involved in politics, um, not until uh, the 1930s when it became involved a little bit when the nation moved ahead to enact the first national uh, significant national gun law passed in 1934 called the National Firearms Act. And representatives of the NRA testified before Congress on that legislation. They supported the basic ideas of it, although they expressed opposition to a, uh, uh, an, a handgun licensing system that had been proposed for that 1934 law. That provision was stripped out, but the 
law of 1934 was enacted, and it's been pretty effective. Mm. Which which um, um, was opposed to machine guns and sawed-off shotguns. I'm assuming that was as a result of all those gangland slayings that we know about from the 1930s and 20s? Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, the way mass shootings today grab national headlines, gangland uh, warfare, gangland shootouts uh, were, were the, the huge headlines of the late 20s and early 30s. And, you know, many movies and popular culture references arise from the St. Valentine's Massacre of 1929 in Chicago and Bonnie and Clyde and John Dillinger and many of these other notorious criminals and public outrage about this crime wave and the weapons that they used, which included sawed-off shotguns, the notorious Tommy gun, the gun that made the 20s roar, they used to call it, resulted in public pressure and pushing the national government to enact laws to restrict those weapons, and that law was uh, pretty effective. And uh, the NRA was uh, kind of on an even keel, now turning its attention more to hunting sporting activities as well as target shooting, Um, and it did play a role in the enactment of the 1968 uh, Gun Control Act passed by Congress, here again supporting some provisions, mm-hmm. opposing others. They commented that the uh, law was would, would generally be okay with the nation's gun owners. But then in 1977, a dissident political group kind of seized control of the NRA that felt it needed to be more political and more hardline. And that's really what put the NRA on course to be the organization that we know today. And how how I'm choosing my right words. I don't want to use the word fight, but just how much was that a a controversy inside the organization that this dissident group essentially took it over? Well, it was a significant, uh, significant uh, political struggle for control of the organization. Groups undergo these sorts of things. It's not unusual in interest group behavior to have a dissident faction and a dominant faction. And in the, at the 1977 NRA convention in Cincinnati that year, this dissident group, uh, within the you know organizational rules, uh, utilized the rules to gain some some advantages and to then. Uh, win control of the organization and push out the people who had controlled uh, the NRA for many years prior to that time. Uh, For example, the old guard leadership had wanted to move the NRA's headquarters to Colorado Springs, Colorado, Mm. out of Washington, D.C., because they wanted to emphasize, you know, uh, the outdoors, uh, hunting, sporting activities related to kind of a natural habitat, habitat, and not emphasize politics so much, whereas the group that won control of the NRA saying, no, we need to spend more time on politics, we need to be more hardline, we need to talk more about the Second Amendment and gun rights, and be much more unyielding and really ratchet up the pressure. And so they succeed in taking control of the organization, and it's become more political, more hard right uh, ever since. Well, let me ask you about the assault weapons ban and and the Brady Bill. Of course, this was after Ronald Reagan was shot. Um, was the assault weapons ban, was that effective? And I guess by that, I mean, did it reduce the number of fatalities or injuries as a result of assault weapons? Well, the assault weapons ban was enacted in 1994, 
by Congress, very controversial, and it, it wasn't a very strong piece of legislation. It had a 10-year window. It had a that saying that the law would only be in effect for 10 years, and then Congress would have to renew it affirmatively, which it did not do in 2004. Um, it grandfathered in existing weapons and existing bullet magazines. So despite those limitations, there were some studies of the effectiveness of the law, which concluded that it did result in a drop in the use of uh, assault-type weapons, those that had been subject to regulation, in selected cities around the country. Uh, and that was sort of the basis for the study. So the, the conclusion was that it did have a limited effect, beneficial effect in terms of crime and, and uh, related violence, um, but the, the term, the, uh, that limited nature uh, wasn't enough to prompt Congress to renew the ban in 2004. When, when it expired, and we're almost up in a break here, it sounds like you need to uh, grab your your breath there or uh, get a, a drink of water there. Let me just quickly reintroduce you, and then we will take a short break, and we've got a lot of people that want to join our conversation. Talking about the Second Amendment, uh, the NRA, the evolution of both, Robert Spitzer is our guest. He's a professor, chair of the political science department at the State University of New York at Cortland. He's written a bunch of books about gun policy. And uh, joining us on Radio Times to talk about uh, what we need to understand about the Second Amendment, also the role and power and influence of the NRA. You can join us at 1-888-477-9499. You can also send us an email, radiotimes at whyy.org. And you can tweet us at whyy Radio Times. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Much more. This is Radio Times here on WHYY in Philadelphia. Just to recap here, when the NRA was founded some 150 years ago, its focus was on marksmanship and gun safety. Today, it's considered one of the most influential and powerful voices in politics and generally does not give an inch on guns. We're talking with political scientist Robert Spitzer about the evolution and history of the NRA. He's also an authority on the Second Amendment and gun policy. Let me read a bunch of comments that we have here, one from Judy, uh, only slightly off top. But can someone explain the Republican logic that wants to leave requirements for assault weapon purchases up to the states, but wants to pass reciprocal concealed carry legislation that mandates that states respect permits of other states with weaker qualifications. An email from Bob. Let's call it for what it is. The NRA and the gun lobby is about the, is about making money. Nothing more, nothing less. Arm the teachers translates into selling more guns. The lobbyists and the Republicans controlled by them have blood on their hands, sad to say, but to them, the victims of mass shooting are collateral damage. Um, Robert Spitzer, let me get you to respond to Bob's comment. And a lot of people feel as if the NRA works for the gun industry today. Is there some truth to that? Well, the gun industry and the NRA are linked very, very closely, to be sure. The gun industry contributes money to the NRA. Uh, Gun industry representatives serve on NRA boards and uh, governing bodies. Um, And they do have one overriding common interest, which is to press as many guns into as many hands as possible. Because after all, the political base of the NRA is gun owners. Obviously, there are many, many more gun owners in the country than there are members of the NRA, but still that's their base. And if you're the gun industry, you're in the business of selling weapons. And of course, the more of them you sell, the the better you'll do uh, with your bottom line. So it's a very, it's a very close long-term relationship 
relationship, and the NRA has served as kind of the political uh, organ for the gun uh, industry for many, many years. Let me read an email from uh, from William. He said, "William, he says I'm a lifelong shooting sports enthusiast, former NRA member. I've watched their transition from a wholesome all American organization associated with outdoor recreation, gun safety, and Boy Scout merit badges to an advocate for militaristic anti gov." anti-government policies and groups. Their magazine is full of advertisements for black, i.e. military rifles and pistols. I cannot find a local public range other than Fort Dix that does not require NRA membership as a condition of joining. I'm interested in what he talked about, the the advertising, especially for these assault rifles. And I've, I've looked at, at gun magazines, and there is this... Um, I mean, it, it reminds you of the, the video game commercials in terms of its lethality. Well, yes, and there's been this kind of frantic public relations campaign to walk away from the term assault weapon because, or assault rifle because of its military connotation. And of course, one of the reasons people, some people like to buy these weapons is because they like the idea of owning a weapon that has kind of military macho and military uh, uh, connection. Um, yet, by the same token, uh, uh, the gun industry and the NRA realized that that military connection uh, also is something of a political black eye, especially when you have shootings like these. And so they like to refer to them instead as sporting weapons or emphasize the uh, self-defense uh, uh, utility or personal utility of, of what's generally known as an assault rifle, an assault weapon. Um, but there is this kind of schizophrenia about the fact that it is militarily derived, but yet the military connection is kind of a burden that they carry when these weapons are used to kill civilians. Mm. Let me get Larry from uh, Old City to join us on Radio Times. Hi, Larry. Go ahead. You're on the air. Hey, hi. hi, Mari. How are you? Good. Hey, just a comment. I teach history at a local community college. The Second Amendment comes up a lot. And the question that's always asked is, uh, what is the ultimate political goal of the Republican Party, especially the hard right of the Republican Party and the gun lobby, of keeping these loose gun laws in place? The answer I always come up with is uh, akin to what that guy just texted in. They hold out the hope that if they can't get what they want through normal political means, that they hold out the hope for armed rebellion against the federal government. Hmm. I'd like to hear the professor's comment on that. Thank me t- you. Me too, Larry. Go ahead. Your own, uh, 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 thank you, Larry, for calling in. Sorry about that. Uh, Robert, what are your thoughts about that? I mean, there's certainly well, they, a faction where you hear that very loud and clear. Very definitely. Larry raises a very important element to what to the belief that is held by some, I don't want to overgeneralize here, but held by some in the uh, gun community, which is the idea that they own weapons, not just to make a political statement, which some of them do, but more specifically to say that they are prepared to use these weapons in a case of armed rebellion or armed insurrection uh, against the government if they on their own sort of decide somehow that the government has become tyrannical or is no longer responding to the people. And aside from distorting the the uh, theory and principles that gave rise to this idea back in the 18th century and before, it is a rather disturbing notion that somehow people can decide for themselves, well, you know, I don't think the elected representatives are, are behaving in a democratic way, so I have somehow a unilateral right to 
to engage in armed rebellion, which means killing, kidnapping, and creating mayhem. I mean, this issue arose very specifically in the 19th century in the Civil War. And the Civil War was resolved based on the notion that states did not have the right to engage in rebellion nor the individuals within it, because that is against the Constitution and against the law that they claim to be upholding. I was reading that a number of gun companies are declaring bankruptcy. It looks as if uh, gun sales under President Trump have gone down. They went up under President Obama. How do you understand that? Well, there is a phenomenon that is well understood in the gun industry that they refer to political sales of guns. And that's the term they use, political sales, where people in recent years will go to a store to buy a gun, not because the old one is worn out or because they want a different model, but because they want to make a political statement to say, look, I have a right to do this, and I disagree with, let's say, President Obama. And we did indeed see uh, an uptick in gun sales after President Obama was elected in 2008, after he was reelected in 2012, and in a couple of other similar political moments. The problem is that you sort of live by this uh, sales tactic. You also may, you know, suffer Hmm. from this sales tactic. And Donald Trump was elected with the hearty endorsement of and support of the NRA. And so the idea that you can gin up a threat that the president wants to take your guns away uh, doesn't work with the current president because President Trump supports gun rights and has opposed stronger gun laws. So the political sales reverse is that they've crashed because the political impetus is gone. And add to that the fact that the gun industry produces a fairly durable commodity. You know, a gun can last decades easily with very minor and basic uh, maintenance. Um, And so they have kind of a uh, long-term problem with having enough sales to keep them economically viable. And I think there's something like 300 million guns in this country. Do you know the answer to that? There is no single precise number. It's probably in the range of 280 million to 300 million, more or less. That's it's in that ballpark. Sure. Let me see. Get. Uh, let me see what Bertha from uh, Chester has to say. Bertha, go ahead. Your radio times. Yes. Hi. Good hi morning. There. Morning. Um, I'm, I'm calling because uh, my question goes to uh, why can't the U.S. treat gun violence as a public health problem? In 1996, there was a bill passed, I believe it was called the Dickey Amendment, that virtually shut down research on gun violence in the United States. And from from my understanding, um, that had to do with uh, Congress not passing it because of the NRA's support. And from what I gather, the NRA was afraid of what uh, that study would would find and... um, and, and I would love to hear more sure. more talk about this particular uh, research. I'm not hearing anything about it. And uh, so that's basically my question. It's a good Why one, Bertha. the U.S. treat gun violence as a public health problem? Thank uh, you very much. Thank you for calling into Radio Times. We did a show about that not so long ago. But she is, uh, Robert Spitzer, I, I believe, referencing the CDC um, and their inability to, to do uh, research that in any way would be used for gun control. Well, that's right. And uh, Bertha was uh, completely correct about that. It was an amendment that was added to legislation to essentially uh, bar the spending of that uh, of government money on what they deemed 
deemed uh, gun control, gun violence, um, and that was money that was would have been uh, apportioned out to to researchers and the CDC to do research on gun violence. There is research that is ongoing. The public health community generally has taken a considerable interest in the gun violence problem in America, and so research does go on and supported by various ways. But of course, the federal government is a very important source of research in many, many, many areas that you can think of. And this has had an unfortunate effect in not uh, 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 sustaining, you know, good, uh, reliable peer review research on the consequences of gun violence. It's so easy to feel as if um, gun violence is up when there are mass shootings. And, and are mass shootings up, I would say, um, maybe like in the last, what, 10 to 15 years? Are we seeing more mass shootings? Well, there, there continues to be a, a bit of a dispute about this question, but it does seem to be the case that mass shootings have increased. Certainly the lethality of mass shootings has increased. That is, the average number of people killed and wounded has increased in recent years. And it does represent, a, I mean, we have to remind ourselves, it represents a very small percentage of all killings every year. Um, I mean, that's, you know, no comfort to people who are affected by such shootings. And mass shootings are different in nature nature than, uh, you know, the, the, uh, a murder that occurs in a home somewhere or other forms of, of gun violence. And that is key to why people find them so repellent and so abhorrent. And it also suggests as well that there's more to learn about mass shooters and uh, what motivates them, how they can be interdicted, and also whether public policy can be improved, and this takes us to the debate that the country is now really starting to have about can various laws be enacted to improve data gathering, to make it more likely to catch these people, to do better background checks, to restrict access to certain kinds of more destructive and dangerous weapons, and all of those are legitimate public policy questions to raise about what could be done to stem the tide of mass shootings, which is a blot on America. Well, it seems that That is happening more at the state level, state by state level, less so from the U.S. Congress. Uh, That is true. And we saw a similar phenomenon after the Sandy Hook shooting at the end of 2012, where President Obama went to Congress and offered uh, uh, several proposals to uh, tighten federal gun laws. Congress ultimately did not act on them. And that prompted a flurry of activity. Virtually every state changed its gun laws in some way. And already we've seen in over 10 states, at least 10 or 11 states already, new steps to uh, consider to enact new gun laws, to modify existing gun laws, to try and address this issue. And that's sort of classic federalism in operation. Let me read some more comments. One from uh, Rick, an email from Rick. This is the only amendment that gives rights to own a consumer product, and it seems archaic and anachronistic. This is not a call for confiscation of guns. It's a suggestion that the Second Amendment gets in the way of gun control because it's because it gives rights where they are not necessary. An email from Eric, anyone who thinks they can protect themselves from the government with an automatic weapon weapon is delusional. The government will take you out with a drone now. A comment from Gregory, respecting the current discussion, the Second Amendment was a dodge concocted by the founders to appease those Americans who objected to the Constitution of 1787 uh, because it created a national government with power to raise and maintain a standing army. This takes us back to what the founders were thinking. Robert, do you have any thoughts about that? 
Well, that's quite right. I mean, that was understand that before the modern Constitution, we were governed by our first Constitution, the Articles of Confederation. That document prevented the governing Congress from even creating a standing army. Uh, until we had declared war. That posed an obvious problem for the nation's defense, and the militia system was controlled entirely by the states under the Articles. When the modern Constitution was written, guess what? Not only does the new Congress, the one that exists today, the legislative branch, have the power to create and maintain a standing army, it also has nearly complete control over the militias. Mm -hmm. And the states back in the late 1780s were frantic about this because they were afraid of losing control over their militias. And that dynamic, that concern, fed directly to the inclusion of what became the Second Amendment and the Bill of Rights and to other things, too. And almost out of time here, final question to you, Robert Spitzer. So looking ahead, um, do we just have to learn to live with this level of gun violence or are there some common sense regulations or laws that would reduce the carnage? There is a growing body of research and some real-life uh, experiments occurring in some states that show that very, these very specific types of regulations do have a beneficial effect on reducing crime, reducing gun crime, reducing the lethality of gun violence. Uh, we have live uh, uh uh, cases in places like New York State and Connecticut and elsewhere where that's been pretty clearly demonstrated. There's other research that shows there are things that can be done that would be very beneficial, but there has to then be the political will mm. to do them. And how powerful do you think the NRA is today? Well, it's a very powerful group. I wouldn't minimize it. Its power is not as great as I think its reputation suggests, uh, partly because most people oppose the agenda of the NRA, but most people aren't paying attention to the gun issue most of the time, whereas, of course, the NRA is focused like a laser on this one issue all the time with their supporters. But at moments where the public's paying attention and is interested and is concerned, that's when change historically has occurred. Robert Spitzer, thank you for joining us today on Radio Times. Sure. It's good to be with you today. Nice to have you with us as well. And again, professor and chair of the political science department at the State University of New York at Cortland. And he's written a whole bunch of books about guns and gun policy, including Guns Across America and the new seventh edition of The Politics of Gun Control. Go to whyy.org slash Radio Times, and you can find out much more about this program. Diana Martinez, the engineer for today's edition of Radio Times, the show produced by Debbie Builder, John Ahrens, and Trinae Nuri. I'm Marty Moss-Cohen. Thank you for joining us. 